Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good winter weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Every weekend, you'll hear from chefs, artisan food makers, farmers, authors, travel experts, sommeliers, and more who are passionate about everything delicious. It's my goal to feed your soul on this show, so don't touch your dial because I have an hour of scintillating and delicious conversation coming up. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com where there's lots of holiday inspiration and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And you can hear radio podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes. Just search Chef Jamie Gwen. That will get you to me. So let's dig in, shall we? I like to kick off this show every week with a culinary story, a method, a technique, chef's tips and tricks to make you the best cook you know. And so this past week, I whipped up a bevy of dishes with the remainder of things from my fridge and my freezer, and I had to share. You see, I was making room for an upcoming holiday party, and needless to say, my fridge is almost always full. In fact, I have a friend who calls it the infinity fridge since there's always something delectable in it, he says, and he stops by often for a peek and a few bites, which I love. Now, maybe your fridge is full or you're planning for a party or a big grocery shopping with the holidays upcoming. And so it's time to clean it out. Waste not, want not. I did a bit of cleaning out, and in a matter of 15 minutes, I had a coconut chicken soup on the stove, pomegranate chicken thighs roasting in the oven, and some lamb shoulder chops that I found in the freezer braising with white wine and vegetables in a foil packet, like my mom says my grandmother used to make. Now, you could call leftovers leftovers, but I think... It's better to name them something else. I don't know. Leftovers seems to have a negative connotation or at least having earned that. Um, I heard a fabulous phrase of late and so I adopted it and I call it extending the table. And it really does mean the same thing. But in the interest of wasting less and spending less and eating more... Think about what you had for dinner last night or the night before that. Maybe you roasted a chicken, but did you do full justice to the chicken? Did you use the chicken carcass and simmer it to make this rich, delicious broth that that you then threw uh, store-bought or frozen let's say, uh, Chinese dumplings from the Chinese market into, and then you had a totally new and completely delicious meal. I happen to like the challenge of saving the last bits of onion after I dice it and the few limp carrots that are in the produce bin and the center leaves of the celery instead of tossing all those things in the garbage. Now, I am not making myself out to be a culinary hero here. You should know, I do not compost I have a quasi green thumb, but not really. I do love to grow herbs outside and I do use them up, but 
I think we can all do something good for the planet and for our prosperity if we saved more and used it up. Like the heels of the loaf of bread you bought. Did you make breadcrumbs? Well, you could have. You can dry them out in the oven or toast them and grind them, those bread cubes or slices that you have left. And when you take the extra minute, I think you feel better about the other things that you throw away. Reusing leftovers is not a punishment. I think it's a chance to be creative. And by the way, I have had to adopt this attitude. If you ask my mom, she will tell you I never loved a leftover. In fact, I think it was the budding chef in me as a child growing up. I never wanted to eat the same thing twice in a row. It still sort of applies today, but now (laughs) I'd like to say humbly I have the culinary chops to... uh, reduce, reuse, recycle, remake, repurpose. And I'll take that chicken soup and make it something brand new. Fresh ginger, those Chinese dumplings I mentioned to you, chopsticks on the side of the bowl. I feel good about that. So this is somewhat a conversation of an act of thankfulness. I thought I would share some amazing meals, some inspiration that you can make from leftovers in your fridge today. Do you have leftover pasta, let's say? Did you, you know, cook an entire pound and then only use half? Well, why not make a spaghetti frittata? Spaghetti for breakfast? Oh, yes. Now, when I grew up at Hugo's in Los Angeles, they make a signature dish called Pasta Mama. Leftover spaghetti, beaten eggs, copious amounts of Parmesan cheese. It's very delicious. It works for lunch or dinner. And you pump up the protein value with the eggs and you could throw in some veggies for good measure. And I have to say, a spaghetti frittata, a hit every time. Talked about an abundance of bread, breadcrumbs for sure. How about a panzanella? Toast the bread cubes, throw in lots of colorful veggies, uh, you know, cherry tomatoes halved, cubes of mozzarella, a handful of arugula. Make that your side salad or your starter course for dinner tonight. Now, you say you have leftover pizza, do you? Who has leftover pizza? That's like having leftover wine. I know. But if you happen to have leftover pizza, have you ever made pizza croutons? All you do is take the crust off the edge and you cut it into bite-sized squares and then you toast them in the oven. And by the way, they are really good on top of tomato soup. Now, if you have uh, cooked rice left over, oftentimes this comes from my takeout from the Chinese restaurant. Here's what you should do. Make coconut rice pudding. Super simple. You can make it with white or brown rice. And I happen to love anything coconut milk, as you know, if you're a, list- a loyal listener, a longtime listener of the show, or now you know. And I'll sweeten with honey or agave or maple syrup and I think it's a healthier dessert. Uh, You could always make fried rice with leftover veggies uh, in your produce bin. Uh, The brown rice that is cold the day after in your fridge from your Chinese takeout or leftovers at the Chinese restaurant actually makes the best fried rice. It fries up. It soaks up the flavor. It's just so scrumptious. And you don't have to spend hours in the kitchen on dinner like that, right? Uh, How about making arancini, what the Italians call a rice ball or a risotto ball, uh, because they're just a perfect starter with a cocktail uh, or a glass of wine. And you moisten the rice 
with lots of uh, beaten egg and cheese and otherwise, you form balls, you coat them in uh, breadcrumbs mixed with Parmesan cheese. At least that's how I do it. Remember those leftover breadcrumbs? And then you fry them. I mean, what could be bad? Now, you could always make easy chicken and rice soup as well, but I'd rather have arancini. If you have leftover protein, steak or pork or even chicken, if there's a football game on, make leftover nachos, or rather, I should call them by the proper name, extending the table nachos. Serve them for game day or at a party, dice or, you know, slice up that meat and throw that on top of your favorite nacho recipe. If you have uh, any veggies that are sort of on their way, they go into that soup uh, that I talked about, but you can always pickle it. I happen to love pickled veggies and they're great to keep in a mason jar when friends stop by at the holidays, put them out, um, serve something slightly off dry like a Riesling or a buttery Chardonnay to offset the acid of those veggies and you've got it made. And then if you happen to have a piece of salmon in the fridge or the freezer or even leftover already cooked, it is definitely cold enough to make a nice bowl of chowda. You don't even have to be from Boston because I happen to love a fish chowder. There's something hearty and warm and wonderful about it, right? And that always extends the table. I hope you found delicious inspiration in these ideas. And you can always email me direct. I'll send you my best recipes happily. You can reach me at jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. Coming up next, a gentleman that I am proud to call my friend and an expert on many things, David Leet, is here. The three-time James Beard award-winning food writer is dishing on the most delicious meal of the year. We are planning for Thanksgiving. You'll also hear this hour from Dr. Rupi Ojilla. He shares his insight as a, a medical professional on prevention and well-being, in fact, and what to eat to beat illness. Before the end of the hour, don't miss it. We are raising a glass and toasting to the revival of Riesling. Winemaker David Rosenthal of Chateau Saint-Michel is stopping by and you will want to grab a glass. Lots more fabulous food coming up right after this. Delivering the world of food directly to your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Do you want to be a Thanksgiving god or goddess? Well, this man has the best tips, tricks, and recipes to make you a culinary hero on the most delicious day of the year. We are planning for a Thanksgiving feast, so stack the flavor cards in your favor and listen up. David Leet has a culinary lesson you don't want to miss. David is a three-time James Beard Award-winning food writer and the founder of LeetsCulinaria.com, where he shares hot food and dry wit. He's also the author of The New Portuguese Table and the very moving, honest, funny, and real memoir entitled Notes on a Banana. 
He is an expert on many things. His blog has been much adored for its deliciousness since 1999, and I am very proud to have him as a culinary contributor to this show. He's back with Thanksgiving inspiration from the simple to the sophisticated. David Leet is here to dish. Hi, so glad to have you back. How are you, David? I'm doing well. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Jamie. Well, thank you. Okay, share your secrets. What's on your Thanksgiving menu? Is there a theme? Because I started planning. Well, there is somewhat of a theme. Um, I always do my Portuguese turkey with two stuffings. And uh, that comes from my family. And the story behind that is that the turkey is presented or prepared very simply. It's just... You have a, an orange that you chop up, a lemon you chop up, some bay leaves, and you throw it inside. You sprinkle it with, um, on top you put some butter, you rub some butter, and then you sprinkle it with paprika and salt and pepper, and that's it. The secret and all the fun stuff happens in the two different dressings that go on the side. We don't put it inside, it's on the side. And when I was growing up, my godmother, who is a French-Canadian, always served this thing called French stuffing, which... Is it a, a misnomer because it doesn't go inside the turkey? But it had potatoes and it had pork and it had beef, and it was kind of a mashed potatoey, kind of chunky thing that was served on the side. And I always adored it. Mm. And my grandmother always made this bread stuffing that had chorizo, which is our Portuguese sausage, which has wine in it and paprika and tons of garlic, and it was very red, like brick red, because it had a lot of wine in it and paprika and garlic and mm. all these things. So you had this very bready one that's red, yeah. and sort of white one that had meat in it. Well, I was in Portugal, and of course they don't celebrate Thanksgiving in Portugal, and I came across both dressings. They were in a turkey recipe, and I thought, isn't this amazing? So in my cookbook, I put both of them together, and so that is going to be the main say. That's going to be the centerpiece. Of course. Of course. Now, wait, I'm going to stop you for a moment there before we move on to sides and sweets and all that good stuff. Because we had a, what I thought was very captivating and well received conversation about to brine or not to brine. Your Washington Post article that got a lot of attention. And we talked chickens and pork roast and those things that are often considered bettered by a brine. You do not brine your turkey at all. Do you do you dry brine? Do you salt rub? Do you uh, air dry? Do you well, prep? I air dry in the refrigerator just so I can get you know that wonderful pellicle that where it, it sort of dries and therefore you get this you get a much browner, wonderful, crispy skin. Yes, I will do that for twenty four hours. And the reason why I don't salt brine, it's it's silly. It's just tradition. No one hmm. salt, no one brined their turkeys when I was growing up. And sure. So I just the idea of doing that's kind of weird, and also it's very hard to find a container that that's lar- that is that large. I now, agree. We do have a cooler that we can use that we can keep outside, but there have been one or two people we know of in this area who have their cooler outside or their turkey brining, and when they wake up on Thanksgiving morning, some animal has taken it away. <laughs> <laughs> so th- there are there are downsides, no doubt. I agree with you. I-, I think the container issue of brining a turkey is a challenge, unless you have a pot large enough and an extra fridge. I have 
I have come to dry brine now, so I'll salt rub it and I mix other aromatics and some brown sugar because I have a very sweet palate, as you know, into the salt um, to dry brine essentially the 24 hours before. But the 24 before that, because Thanksgiving is a holiday of preparation, uh, I do air dry like you talk about for that crispy skin. And and we should just review. It means you take the turkey out of whatever package it came in, whether it came from the high-end butcher and it's in a bag or you bought a turkey, you know, from a uh, you know, from the meat section of your supermarket and you rinse it and clean it and put it on a rack on a sheet pan and you leave it open in the fridge. And it does, it does give you crispier skin. And I think it also seals in the juices when you roast. It's like the, the simplest thing you can do to better your turkey. Because I think what happens is the skin, because it's, it's when, especially in those plastic packages, it's sitting in its own juice. In so moisture, right. It's very moisture, and when it's in the refrigerator and the refrigerator is dry, it starts to dry out. And I think what happens is the pores of the skin start to close up a bit more, too. Yes. So therefore, that holds in a bit more of the juice. Yes, and so I love the culinary science. Thank you. And I love your idea of two stuffings, although you don't yeah. stuff the bird. There is still tremendous controversy about stuffing a bird. Mm-hmm. I know, and I love the crispy edges of a stuffing baked in a casserole dish, essentially. I do too. That's the best part to me. I make stuffing muffins because I want crispy all the way around. So I'll put the stuffing into a muffin tin. But I love your idea of potato and bread. You get a mix of both. Um, What other sides are you serving? Well, I always serve the classic green bean casserole, but I, I make it homemade. Yes. And which is not that hard. You know, you get the green beans and then you, um, you know, you, you blanch them and you make a, a white, a white sauce, a cream sauce. And you get the mushrooms, you saute them, mm. you mix them all up and then you put it in the oven. And then you, you can do, um, you can take onion rings and uh, just buy them like um, the canned ones that people do. Or you can make your own onion rings, which is so easy. And while everything is baking, just slice them. And then you can just fry them. You can put them on top. And it's very easy. On the site we have it, the photograph shows that it's served in its own cast iron skillet. Yes, it looks so good. It looks so good. I love these buttery pull-apart rolls, which are so incredibly easy to make. And you make them in um, any kind of a cast iron or any kind of an enamel um, pot, like mm-hmm. a... Um, a Dutch oven, and sure. they're so easy to make, and you brush them on top, and they're pull apart so the sides are that wonderful, soft side. Mm. We love your daily dish, but all of the deliciousness for Thanksgiving is posted at Leet's Culinaria, L-E-I-T-E-S, culinaria.com. Um, I always love when you come and share your passion, David, so thank you for sharing Thanksgiving with us. May your family and friends uh, just be filled with fabulous food and joy and all wonderful things this feasting holiday. Thank you, Jamie. And yes. yours. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you can find a fabulous read uh, for family, food, and self-discovery at the heart uh, in the beautiful writing of David's most recent book, his memoir called Notes on a Banana. You can follow David on social at David Leet, L-E-I-T-E, and you can find recipes galore to make your Thanksgiving the best ever 
once again at leetsculinaria.com. Stay tuned because we are all about scrumptious celebrations. There's lots more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Feeding your soul every weekend, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Imagine a world in which common conditions like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and dementia are rare. Imagine feeling fabulous all the time, a sharp mind, healthy weight, stellar vision, strong bones, radiant hair, good skin. Well, Dr. Rupi Ojula, an international ER doctor, general physician, and best-selling author, contends that that is all possible. And in his new book, Eat to Beat Illness, Dr. Ojula introduces simple, delicious recipes that are inspired by the science of food as medicine. He's joining us today to share the exact food and spices that are key to overcoming and preventing health problems. And I'm very delighted to have you on the show, Dr. Ojula. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's yes. My pleasure. Yes, of course. Um, okay, please share your latest research because you are proving that food impacts every system of our bodies and you're doing it through sweet Cajun salmon, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, like, so this book is really about teaching people about how diet and lifestyle can amplify our defenses that ever getting ill in the first place. Mm. And the way I did that is by taking the reader on a journey that goes through the fascinating science where we demonstrate across multiple specialties, you know, your eye health, brain health, immune health, heart function, and how nutrition and lifestyle can improve those facets of your, of your well-being in your body. And the final chapter is really looking at similarities between all those different lifestyle advices and, and the diet, dietary advices. And it, it's all the same. It's always the same. It's plant-focused. It's quality fats, lots of color, lots of different types of fiber, and eating in time. And when you actually look at the studies and you put all the stuff together, you realize that you're feeding your body the fuel and the nutrients it needs to look after itself. It has mm. this incredible ability to just function if put in the right environment. And we, you improve your internal environment by feeding it the right sorts of food. That's what I thought was so interesting in the, the lessons in your book when I started reading and learning from it. There are foods that actually fight disease. So if you would, highlight which foods are better for different organs. Like what do we eat? for the best brain or to keep our heart healthy or to keep our eyes focused? The different foods that I went into at the end of each chapter are, are varied. So, for example, starting off with the brain, I talk about different sorts of omega-3 fatty acids. These are the long chains you'll find in things like anchovies and mackerel and, and even uh, 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 salmon as well. And then also berries because they contain all these different sorts of phytonutrients like anthocyanins and a whole bunch of other flavonoids that you find in those herbs, culinary herbs, rosemary, thyme, basil, the accessible herbs, not necessarily the spices that are a bit more exotic, even though they have benefits as well. But really, taking a step back, when you look at 
what's good for inflammation or what's good for immunity or what's good for heart health, it, it's always the same. <laughs> it's always the same. So it's like you can't really necessarily eat prescriptively. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm eating salmon because that's good for my brain. Salmon's good for your skin. Salmon's good for your heart. Salmon's good for your immune system. Salmon's good for so many different things because of the collection of different nutrients it has in that, the proteins, the vitamin A, the the uh, omega-3 fatty acids, as well as a whole bunch of other things that you find in whole foods. Um, and that's what I found so fascinating about this whole process, you know, it, it, dissecting what people usually think of as prescriptive foods are actually foods that improve your general inner ecosystem. So is that what you would define as a superfood? We hear, we hear that term so much today. But if, if we eat according to uh, how to beat illness, as you speak about, and we incorporate the spices and the salmon and the leafy greens and the bright colors, don't those all fall, fall under the category of foods that are super for you? This is why I don't use the term superfood. Right. Superfood implies a hierarchy, and, and plus it's a completely made-up marketing term. It doesn't have any base in the literature at all. Hmm. So really, what, what, when, I, when I talk about food, every food deserves this super status. So it's kind of like it, it doesn't make any sense just to call one food super and one food not. Your humble carrot, your red cabbage, your broccoli, your pea, your asparagus, they all have these wonderful, complex chemicals housed within them in the most perfect arrangement that's conducive to our consumption. So putting one food in a superfood category versus another just doesn't make sense. The best thing you can do is add variety to your uh, weekly shop rather than focusing it on just certain ingredients because it's variety that, A, gives you a beautiful number of different chemicals that interact with your body and you're you're going to be consuming a lot more of them and it also nurtures this huge population of microbes in your gut that are inseparable from health and actually they thrive on variety of different plant foods. I thought it was um, quite fascinating to learn that the latest studies on red meat say it is not as bad as previously thought And I would love your opinion on that. You've mentioned healthy fish and omega-3s, but what do you mix it up with for proteins? There's two parts there. The first thing is I treat all animal products as luxury items. Hmm. When you think about our evolutionary history, we would have only come into contact with meat when we hunted it and we'd prize that possession. We would preserve it. We would prep it. It would be such a commodity that we wouldn't have eaten it probably every single day. That's a, that's a myth. We would have thrived off what we could gather, what we could uh, um, what we could forage in our in our uh, environment, and that would have been largely plants. And to the the point about the red meat studies, unfortunately, those studies are flawed in many ways. And the general consensus by the WHO is that eating too much red meat is bad for our health. And I highly, I totally believe that. Um, when you look at uh, the, the, the largest number of studies, it all points to the same thing. Having too much red meat is not going to be good for us. Everything comes down to the quality and the dose. And the dose, unfortunately, of red meat has to be quite low. So I treat all animal products as luxury items. 
I will still eat red meat, but mm-hmm. I'll have it perhaps once every two weeks. It certainly wouldn't be on my plate every day. Okay. Uh, and I wouldn't encourage anyone else to have it uh, daily either. And when it comes to um, good fats and nuts, I was surprised to see you have a thing for hazelnuts, which, by the way, uh, I, I, I really like about you, Dr. Rupi. I love hazelnuts. It's, my, it's one of my favorite nuts. Uh, but I, similarly, you know, I love cashew, I love walnuts, pistachios. It depends on kind of like what kind of culinary theme you're going for. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're almost like complete nutritional powerhouses, all yes. nuts and seeds. And yes. again, they don't deserve like one, one super and one soft. They're all fantastic. And getting a variety of different nuts, if you're able to consume them, is, uh, is wonderful for, for health. And then also, like, um, people say, you know, this oil is better than this oil. It's, again, about the quality of your oil. So cold-pressed oils, olive oil you probably can't go wrong with. But there's so many others like avocado, sesame, um, tons of different types. And I, I encourage people to look at the quality of their ingredients. I love that you love to cook. I love avocado oil as well. And there are so many recipes in the book um, that look and and just feel so delicious on the page. I know that garbanzo beans are uh, big for you and lentils. And then you yeah. uh, alluded to, to the greens. Um, are all vegetables created equal in your book? Different vegetables uh, provide different qualities to your overall meal. So they're all contributing to this beautiful plate in front of you mm. um, that offers health benefits to you. So, yeah, garbanzo beans I absolutely love. But, you know, you can use any type of bean that you like, whether it be white bean, cannellini bean, kidney bean, navy bean. Um, they all, again, have these wonderful nutritional properties. And I try and add as much variety as possible. Congratulations to you. The book is really, truly beautiful. And I love that you have combined the science of food uh, and medicine together to better our lives. Uh, the new book is called Eat to Beat Illness from Dr. Rupi Ojila. He is the very firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle change to heal and prevent illness. And food as medicine uh, will keep you living well and eating well, no doubt. You can learn more. The book has just released, uh, available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. There's more at thedoctorskitchen.com. And I am now following you, Dr. Rupi, at The Doctor's Kitchen as well, um, so that we can eat well and live well together. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, really thank, thank you so much. And, and kudos to you. Thank you for sharing your expertise, your passion, um, your knowledge, your science, and uh, so much fabulous food. The book, Eat to Beat Illness. Check it out. There is lots more fabulous food coming up in your radio right after this. Welcome back and cheers, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. On this show, we're passionate about wine, so raise your glass and let's toast to Riesling. I believe that Riesling is one of the world's most misunderstood and maybe underappreciated wine grapes. 
While Riesling can make some of the world's greatest sweet wines, there is so much more to this high-quality, age-worthy grape varietal than meets the eye. So we're sipping and savoring today with David Rosenthal, the white winemaker for Chateau Saint-Michel. And we're dishing on the rise of Riesling, debunking the myths, introducing you to new palate profiles, and expanding your wine knowledge. Winemaker David Rosenthal is at the helm of production for Chateau Saint-Michel's delicious Riesling. His illustrious wine career has taken him around the globe to combine his passion and talent for the art and science of winemaking. And in 2015, he was named the White Winemaker. He is doing grand things for the world of Riesling, and so he's here to wax poetic on the virtuous grape and share his knowledge. And I'm very glad to have you on the show, David. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Um, I love the history of Chateau Saint-Michel. Established in 1934, right? You are the, the pioneer of grape growing in Washington State. But what I don't believe great enophiles know is that Chateau Saint-Michel is the world's leading Riesling producer, that you've been making it. Uh, for more than 45 years. Yeah, it's it's something that we really started with from an early stage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when grapes were first planted in Washington, specifically, you know, classic European grape varieties from the from Vinifera family, Washington was thought to be this very cold place, particularly in the winter, uh, someplace where, you know, it, it was just a much cooler climate. And so Riesling, making its home in Germany, where it's, you know, much northern... Uh, much further north and also a, a fairly cool climate, Riesling seemed like a natural fit. Um, mm. I think over time, over the last 50 years, as we've sort of learned more about Washington State as a growing region, it's not quite as cool as people thought. The winters aren't quite as harsh as people thought. But it is a great place for planting Riesling, and we continue to find better and better places for it every year. Which I think is uh, very much uh, a testament to the growth of Riesling. I, I think we are still understanding what Riesling has to offer. I should say, um, because interestingly enough, there are a tremendous amount of myths. So I'd like to debunk them first and foremost. All Rieslings are not sweet, right? This is one that I think it's it's one of those things that just perpetuates itself over time. I I don't really understand why, Um, because Riesling is truly made in, in all styles. And in the places where Riesling does well, it's it's made in styles from bone dry all the way to super sweet. And so you know, the, the super sweet dessert wines that sort of people have in their minds, um, it's such a small percentage of, of the Riesling that's actually produced. If you go to places like Germany right now, you know, dry Rieslings are much more in vogue right. than they were even 20 years ago. Most of the Rieslings that come out of Australia are, are very dry. And I think we've had amazing success here in Washington, you know, across the whole range of Rieslings, but particularly with our dry styles. Because they're just, they're perfectly balanced, they're very food friendly, and yet at the same time, you know, you can just sit down on, the, on your back patio in the summertime and, mm. and have a glass and, it, and, and keep it very simple. That's the other myth that I think needs to be debunked about Riesling. And if you would differentiate for us, sweetness and fruitiness are very different uh, palate profiles. Yeah, and it makes sense why they get confused, right? When when we eat a banana or an apple or a pear, 
right? We're not only tasting and smelling those aromas of that fruit, but we're tasting the inherent sweetness and sugar that's in that fruit. So it's, it's understandable why they get confused, but when we talk about fruitiness and Riesling and these citrus flavors and stone fruit aromas, um, you know, grapes, just like, you know, a pear or a lemon, mm-hmm. everything is a fruit. They have very similar chemical compounds in all of them. And as we ferment the Riesling, we sort of allow these these compounds to come out and they give us the perception of citrus or stone fruit. Um, and so when we talk about fruitiness, we're really talking about those fresh fruit aromas. Well, I think you're doing beautiful things. So kudos to you, uh, taking Riesling to a, a whole new level. And I think really embarking on a, 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 a higher level of commitment to the fact that this is a gorgeous grape that deserves the attention uh, that you're bringing to it. Um, for those that don't know, it always amazes me that the Columbia Valley in Washington, where Chateau St. Michel produces, uh, actually produces more Riesling than any other American wine region. And today, Chateau St. Michel wines number more than 60. They are found in all 50 states, more than 100 countries worldwide. Um, and if you haven't been, it is a beautiful destination to visit. So stop in, see David, learn about these beautiful Rieslings and this dry Riesling from Chateau St. Michel, Columbia Valley, um, which I think is just the most absolutely inviting, elegant, delicious chef's wine I have tasted. Um, I will open a bottle tonight and toast to you, David. I appreciate that. Thank yeah, you so much. Yes, of course. And please continue to do um, the delicious work um, that you are doing. And I hope to see you at the winery soon. Thank you for highlighting the beauty that is Riesling. Cheers to you. Cheers to you. Appreciate it. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of truly delicious conversation and fabulous food. You can continue to send me your ideas, questions, and recipe requests at jamie at chefjamie.com, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. But let me leave you with my last bite for the hour. So the holiday season is here and guests stop by and you need something quick to serve or you're missing a starter or an appetizer for the upcoming big feast. Well, Tell your friends and family you'll be serving warm blue cheese dip and they will flock to your party. I like to serve it with kettle chips or crusty French bread or slices of green apple or pear. I call it my so easy warm blue cheese dip and it is simply three ingredients. I will share the recipe on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where I hope you become a friend and a fan at Chef Jamie Gwen. So please check it out and please come cruise with me. Alaska 2020, August of next year. We are cruising Alaska on Oceana Cruise Lines and I'm teaching private cooking classes, sharing a private shore excursion. There are lots of perks and an incredible value. So to learn more, visit chefjamie.com. I can't wait to cruise with you. And I hope that you will tune in next weekend as there is lots more delectable conversation planned in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.